morning, everybody. This is Jacob Borth from Alliance Mergers and Acquisitions Group. I'm a product specialist in rep and warranty insurance. Um, I'll be joined by my colleague, Sumit Agarwal, here in Chicago, um, a product specialist in, uh, in the rep and warranty insurance product itself. Super happy to have a couple of individuals from Houlihan Logie on the line. And today we're going to be speaking about the broader merger and acquisition market and tie it back to uh, the rep and warranty insurance uh, insurance marketplace. We are looking at providing um, just an update here in, uh, in the month of September 2020. Um, obviously, 2020 has been quite an interesting year to, uh, to say the least. Um, so we're very much looking forward to getting some additional color and some additional insight from, uh, from one of our partners um, at, at a leading investment banking firm, Bullahan Loki, um, namely Lance Myers, as well as, uh, as well as Sean Murphy. So everybody, thanks for joining us this morning and very much looking forward to, uh, to getting your, uh, your insight on the state of the M&A market, um, especially given your, uh, given your background, uh, as well as given your, uh, your experience. I think it's worth noting as well that the individuals that we have on, uh, have on the phone um, are providing insight with more than three decades worth of experience um, on over a thousand transactions. So very much, uh, very much appreciate that everyone, everyone joining us this morning. I do want to uh, do want to have everyone introduce them uh, themselves, but we'll we'll kind of kick off the conversation. Um, I'll, I'll pose a uh, pose a question uh, and open it up to uh, to the table, if you will. Um, what are the major differences that uh, that everyone's seeing in uh, in deals? Um, really, uh, with respect to 2019 versus 2020, and just generally as uh, as the M&A markets are, are continuing to develop uh, and adapt to current market conditions, you know, being at an investment bank, uh, you, you might see uh, more deal opportunities than us here on on the insurance side. Um, so let us know of uh, of, of any uh, hurdles that your clients are facing, new challenges, tougher questions that are being asked, and and really. What you guys view as uh, as, as key to getting uh, getting deals done in this environment? Great, Th thanks, Jacob. This is Sean Murphy. I'm based in Dallas, and, and looking forward to uh, having a great discussion today. So I appreciate the time. I'll, I'll start with a quick overview about what we're seeing in the market, and then I think Lance is going to come in and talk about some challenges and hurdles that we're seeing. But what was very unusual uh, about over the, la the last six months was the pace at which things slowed down, and then now the apparent pace at which things are picking back up. So I'll give some color here. Clearly, uh, in the late spring, as the pandemic was uh, hovering over the country and the, and, and the world, things came to a halt. And really, uh, the private equity firms immediately turned to trying to shore up liquidity and make sure that their existing portfolio companies were going to be able to survive the, the next period, whether they had enough cash to to uh, overcome um, a prolonged shutdown period, whether they ha had debt covenants that they were going to be busted, et cetera. That all resulted in a, a screeching halt of M&A activity. As we started to get to the end of May and early June and, and companies begun to have confidence that their existing portfolio companies were going to survive, or at least the majority of them, there were some deal activity that w was completed, and it was mostly smaller family-owned companies as well as some other distressed assets being sold or some, some limited carve-outs. Then as we progressed late into the summer, the temperatures went up, deal volume actually started to pick up, and, and now as we've uh, got on the other side of Labor Day, we're running at a pretty high pace. In fact, uh, we're hearing from a number 
of our private equity sponsor groups that have noted that they're at pre-COVID levels. I, I believe that that there is a concern about a blue wave coming and a potential tax change, tax law changes that might accompany that. That means that there are a number of, of sort of owner operator entities or, or um, entities where there may not be a generational shift planned to a, a, a younger generation where the, the founder owner operators are just like looking to monetize the investment in advance of, again, a potential tax change that could cause them a lot of money. So, so we have that deal volume. We also have folks that are trying to deploy capital in their normal process and looking back and seeing that they're now six months behind their program. And, and then maybe most importantly, uh, we're continuing to see a tremendous fundraising environment. I, I think I saw some stats that said during the first half of 2020, $100 billion in capital had been raised. Now, some of that had gone to debt funds and, and sort of non-traditional PE, but regardless, if you think about $100 billion in capital being raised in that environment, that puts pressure on the folks to, de to, to deploy, the professional money managers, the private equity groups to deploy their capital. So we're we expect to see a continued increase in the pace of capital deployment uh, until we see some signs that uh, the pandemic is going to uh, reassert itself, which I, I personally don't believe that it will ever. I don't have a, an MD, but uh, I think unless you see something like that, I think it's going to be up and to the right, hopefully, in terms of deal volume. Lance? Uh, thanks, Sean. Uh, my name is Lance Myers. I'm, I'm a director in our transaction advisory service group here in Chicago. And so I, I guess I can just add on to what Sean was saying and discussing kind of next steps forward and some of the challenges and hurdles we think that might exist along the way. And, and I think still it's important to realize the market is unprecedented here. And so everybody's pretty interested in, in how this will continue to evolve. And and there's obviously some uncontrollable circumstances here. But I think the biggest thing that people are, are looking at is seeing, look, deal volumes are picking up uh, quite significantly. And how will this turn into impacts on valuation, especially here in the next few months with all these variables hitting the market and, and what we are seeing in multiples so far. And, and, and so far, all signs are, are pointing to multiples maintaining strong and even at a, a pace where we saw in the first half of 2020 that I, they actually rose. Uh, there is some mix there with some opportunistic investing and, and also a, a little bit of mix of sectors such as technology that usually have a little bit higher multiples anyways. But I think everybody's kind of uh, under the impression here that they think multiples given the market conditions and the competition that will be out there will maintain strong uh, throughout the rest of 2020 and into 2021. But it's definitely something that people are keeping their eyes on as they think about how they want to approach the market. The next challenge I think that that we're seeing that, that that's going to be very different is just kind of what people are saying are is really the new normal and process dynamics, and that's really how you are approaching this given the restriction on travel and, and everything. And so what we are seeing is that most meetings, which if there's an in-person meeting, are getting pushed way later in processes. And so whereas traditionally you had these management meetings in, in very early in the process and people are getting a feel on culture, et cetera. But now they're, they're uh, doing most of their diligence remotely and really waiting until they are very positive on, on a, a select few parties that are going to move forward in the process before thinking about any type of in-person meetings, which is very different than what has historically happened. And, and, and so we're also seeing some processes are running at a much tar more targeted audience uh, because of this. 
and we're just kind of continuing to see how that situation evolves and seeing what will continue in this regard and what will kind of uh, revert back to the old normal. I think in Europe, uh, we've already seen some increased travel for deals uh, and more in-person meetings, but here in the States, we're still seeing a lot of these remote uh, diligence sessions and management meetings and, and Zoom calls and, and all of that. So that will be very interesting and, and definitely a, a hurdle as we continue to navigate this market. I think that's good, and I, I think that we, um, we very much are, are seeing the same thing on uh, on the insurance side as well. Um, you know, irrespective of the broader uh, the broader economy, um, I think we're we're all speaking the same language as respects. It's certainly been a V-shaped recovery in M&A. Um, again, irrespective of the uh, of the broader uh, economy, um, and Ed, I do always find it uh, find it interesting hearing people say pre-COVID and, and, and almost post, uh, post-COVID, I think we're pretty much at the point where um, that's going to be referred to something like, uh, like BC, right? Um, uh, you know, certainly it's, uh, it's had such an impact um, in, uh, in 2020 and, and kind of remains to, uh, remains to be seen. And, and completely agree with you guys as well that from a deal volume standpoint, um, we, are definitely, uh, we are definitely higher than actually um, where we were, let's call it, in, uh, in February and uh, February and March. Again, we're focused on, uh, on rep and warranty insurance our, uh, ourselves. Um, you know, given how commonplace that has become in, uh, in deals, question for the, for the Houlihan guys, um, you know, does, has your approach changed to initial diligence efforts um, at all? Um, if it has changed, to what extent? Um, and, and do you see any, any benefit on the insurance side in getting a broker involved earlier in the process? Uh, and again, that just helping to set expectations and, and advising your uh, your clients. Um, and how is that? How are we uh, integrated really with uh, with respect to uh, to due diligence um, and, and really highlighting areas of, uh, of focus or, or concern um, to uh, to your clients? The best way to handle your question, I think, is looking at how reps and warranty insurance ha- has evolved over time, and and look at how we've continuously adopted and into our diligence these issues that have come up through reps of warranty issues and have made them as an integral part of diligence. And and so I think it's important that we continue to evolve in the processes and, and learn from each each situation that comes up. And I think that will continue to happen in today's environment. So uh, I, I think that if we can uh, have a better working relationship earlier in processes, then, then of course we would invite that and that's very helpful. Uh, because look, this is this is a lot of uncertainties that are happening from a diligence perspective that we're continuously having to uh, look at different areas, and, and I'm sure from a Western warranty insurance, there's going to be different questions that come up on, on that we've never seen before. So uh, if we can work those in earlier in processes, I, I think that would be very helpful to um, make sure we get the right questions addressed. Uh, Sean, I don't know um, if you have any thoughts on on how, how we are dealing with this currently in, in this environment and what that what the impacts are in reps and warranty. Yeah, I think everything that you said is is, is accurate. Uh, earlier involvement is always going to be uh, better. What I think is going to happen is we're going to see a huge uptick in, in, in the need and the deployment of uh, RWI. And I think that's a function of a couple things. One is what I alluded to earlier, which is, a, at least in the near term, a desire to get some transactions closed in advance of 1231. Two is what you mentioned in the fact that, that the deal dynamics have changed a little bit and that folks are trying to prioritize some level of activity and, and trying to minimize the in-person contact 
that's going to inevitably lead to a truncated due diligence process. And then three, I think, is the is the very truncated due diligence process that's sort of underpinning this, and that folks are going to be asked to spend money and to commit to something earlier because there's going to be such a large amount of capital chasing a smaller amount of transactions that are available. So if you, if you think that you had a company that either fared very well in, uh, d during the pandemic, and that might be a counter-cyclical or just something that was poised well, uh, and then you have another company who, who, who didn't, wasn't impacted as negatively as one might expect, well, th those are sort of going to be the minority of the total population of traditional acquisition candidates. And so there's going to be a lot more capital searching those uh, or searching for those than traditional, if you can believe that, and that's going to lead to the, the sell-side bankers being able to uh, push for more stringent terms or, or more quick uh, uh, more quick settling of, 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 of a firm commitment as opposed to being able to draw diligence out, and that will come at the uh, to the to the detriment of, of completing traditional due diligence, and thus you're going to have a larger reliance on on RWI. So I, I think it's going to be an uptick at least for the next 18 to 24 months, and, and then we will see how the market turns and evolves. But, but I, I think there's going to be a lot more of it sooner rather than later. Yeah, right. And, and oftentimes, you know, we as, as the insurance broker, and I'll stop short of, uh, of suggesting that we are, we are taking on the role of, uh, of, an investment, uh, of an investment bank, but oftentimes we are at, even, in a, even at a, at a pre-LOI stage, where we think uh, underwriters or where we think where we think that the insurance policy itself might have some sort of a hurdle right so again pre pre LOI oftentimes we are asked where where might be areas of uh, of heightened focus or areas of concern in the uh, in the diligence process and that certainly continues to uh, to evolve uh, as well um, and, and we'll talk about the process a little bit later on and how the RWI process has evolved um, certainly over the last last five years and unquestionably so over the last 10 years. But to the extent that, again, we can, we can partner hand-in-hand hand, um, and let our, uh, let our collective clients know, uh, you know, diligence is expected as respects network security and privacy data, as an example, or uh, classification or misclassification of independent contractors as employees, as another example. Um, maybe even uh, material contracts, whether that is a material supplier uh, or a uh, or a material customer contract. Those are areas where where we really look to get involved and try and add uh, add value early uh, early on for our clients. And, uh, and and I do think that it alleviates um, alleviates pressure on the, on the process from uh, from the outset, um, as opposed to the eleventh hour, you know where where we're closer to the deal signing or we're, or we're looking to implement the, the insurance on a, on a short fuse. Um, again, just being able to, to give our clients uh, broader insight, if you will, I think, I think goes, uh, goes a long way and has gone a long way. And Jacob, to kind of build upon that um, and for, for Sean and Lance, by way of scope of diligence, what sort of changes have you guys seen over the last five to 10 years? And I guess this also is more recent given just current market trends. And this could include areas such as financial performance and employment matters that Jacob referred to. Yeah, I think the uh, seismic shifts have come in the fact that over the last five years in particular, sell-side due diligence has, has really almost become a standard or a requirement. Quite honestly, it was something that we resisted on this side of the Atlantic for several years because accounting profession, the due diligence profession was viewed as 
being much more beholden to a client as opposed to beholden to industry standards. And I think we overcame that initially, and, and now we're starting to see folks fall into that trap, and, and almost it, the due diligence document is sometimes becoming a sales document. I think we need to do a much better job of, of reverting it back to a due diligence document that reasonably outlines assumptions and, and can let the re reader draw his or her own conclusions, but I'll get off my soapbox. So that's one big change is the sell side document. And then I think the second big change is, is the emergence of additional due diligence areas, the topical areas. So now we have firms and, and cottage industries that are there to support information technology due, due diligence, human resources due diligence like you all do. Um, um, every other form of due diligence, whether it be product and, and cyber, um, or you know, we have pension, we have environmental, and all of those are coming through with a much more thorough due diligence approach, I think, in the last five to 10 years than we had closer to the, the turn of the century, where it was almost if somebody had a heartbeat and claimed that they had some cash flow, they could be acquired uh, in post haste. So it, it's been a nice evolution to a more thorough process, in my opinion, Lance. Yeah, I agree with both those things, definitely. Uh, I, the couple things that I would add at first is it's probably data analytics. And uh, really over the past seven or eight years, you've seen a rapid involvement of, uh, of data analytics and its incorporation into diligence processes. I think if you look back eight to 10 years ago, data analytics consists of, of just an Excel data book where you might have uh, ran a price volume analysis or something like that in there. And uh, if you fast forward to today with the programs of Alteryx and Tableau and, and all of these advanced data analytics programs out there that make it easy and, and to have this type of analysis at your fingertips, it, it's really been incorporated as a necessity in, in most processes. You see that most data rooms now have a robust transaction level database in there. So uh, potential buyers can can look at this, and you see all sales side processes using the, this type of analysis as well. So I think that's a, a key movement and will continue to be a key movement of how diligence evolves, especially from a finance perspective. And I, I mean, maybe also on that same um, lens is, is just the involvement of diligence past just kind of that key risk aversion type diligence. And, and what we're seeing really in the last couple of years is, is a lot more toward value creation as well as how you can do the diligence process, how you can find that additional value to help you be more competitive in your bid process as a buyer. And so whether that be uh, uh, using data analytics to find different pricing opportunities or or whether that be value created through doing it different types of work on the IT and HR footprint with uh, cost takeouts or, or, or whatever that means is. But I think private equity sponsors are, are really looking at ways to drive additional value and, and be able to be a little bit more competitive uh, to hopefully win uh, win more processes. I guess on that point, one of the one of the first things I want to touch on would just be how claims on a reps and warranties insurance policy have driven uh, diligence uh, or scope of diligence. Um, but otherwise, just standard things such as the type of deal um, driving diligence, such as um, we see quite a bit of tech and healthcare deals. So on, on a tech deal, um, data leaks and cyber breaches are pretty important. And on a healthcare deal, billing, coding, licensure, or healthcare regulatory diligence is pretty important. And as I just touched on on the claim side, um, Recently, a few household name carriers have recently published claims data. Um, and I won't bore everyone here with the, with the details and turn this into a claims podcast, but the point here is that high-level claims data 
uh, essentially in turn is going to drive diligence since that's where the carriers have been burned in the past. And, and that's not to say that you can diligence everything. There's just certain things you can't diligence given certain sensitivities um, around the transaction. So when we're talking about an average of what a few carriers are seeing by way of driving claims, top of mind are financial statements, customer contracts and relationships, and taxes. The second, which is customer contracts, we are now seeing carriers ask for written summaries of customer diligence. This is one of the areas where diligence is a little difficult, just given sensitivities around reaching out to clients and the like, but markets want to make sure that when you're talking about diligence in the top 10 customers, you're not just talking to customers eight through 10, but rather a bulk so that, that basically count for more than half of sales. And then with the third that I mentioned, taxes, these are usually precautionary in nature and usually a result of an audit inquiry. So there's nothing more there other than what carriers have historically been requiring. But the first, which I touched upon, which is the most important, is financial statements. And this is where carriers are kind of digging their heels in a bit. Uh, some won't quote uh, a deal without audited financials or a QRV. And this is in large part driven to smaller deals and maybe a, a CFO or his or her internal staff conducting the diligence. This is where carriers are, are commenting on internal versus external diligence and that a third party advisor with an army of associates can likely do a more robust uh, report and deep dive into the financials than a CFO and his or her staff likely would. So in tying it back to the specific question about changes in the last five to 10 years, I want to say from our perspective, amongst the many various factors that there are out there, um, it's in large part due to claims. Uh, the diligence requirements are certainly driven by these trends in claims and where, where markets may have been okay with certain reports, uh, whether they're internal or ex external in the past, are just requiring a bit more these days just given where they've been burned. Yeah, and I think that brings up a good uh, a number of good points as well, Sumit, and just the the evolution of uh, of the rep and warranty product uh, again over the last five to uh, five to ten years, um, inclusive of those uh, of those areas that you touched upon. You know, more claims are being paid, uh, and, and again, not to uh, not to turn this into a, a claims a claims podcast. I think we'd probably have a number of people um, hit the stop button and go about their day if we if we uh, if we did. But more claims are, are in fact being uh, being paid, which uh, at the end of the day, this is an insurance product, and what you uh, what you want to see. Um, I, I think the product's prior stigma, if you will, was simply that it was an expensive, arduous insurance policy to get in place, and there simply was no loss data because, uh, frankly, losses were few and far between. And I think that's a that's a, a massive uh, a massive shift, and, and something we'd be remiss in not mentioning. Um, I'd also offer up the fact that, you know, users of the product itself and, and really uh, advocates of the product itself uh, certainly is, is more prevalent amongst financial sponsors. So the likes of investment banks, fundless sponsors, obviously private private equity as well, you know, they're very much, uh, very much in, in tune with uh, and, and accustomed to utilizing the, uh, the product. And, and I guess kind of the, the irony of it is, even though there are more claims being uh, being paid, our market has uh, has frankly exploded. Um, even within the last three years, it feels like uh, it feels like every six months or so there is another uh, insurance carrier and more insurance capacity on on the rep and warranty side, um, which in turn has has resulted in broader terms and conditions, broader terms and conditions, and, and downward pressure on on pricing, which again is uh, 
is, is music to the ears of our of our of our end users. I I also think that um, you know in in 2020 um, I, I think we're starting to maybe see a little bit more of a blend of strategic transactions as opposed to um, focus solely on those that are that are financial sponsor driven, um, which is uh, which is obviously great to uh, great to great to see as well. So uh, you know certainly I think I think the major players um, in our in our space continue to be some of the the usual suspects, um, but I do think we're starting to see. And we'll continue to see in the next six to twelve months uh, some more some more strategic trans, uh, transactions as well. For the question, folks want to know, and this is specifically for Lance and, and Sean. But how have you and the larger Hulan Loki team been handling challenges around COVID-19 and the CARES Act? And this kind of ties back to a previous question, but this just includes deal flow, diligence efforts, and just generally from an investment banking standpoint. But obviously, as it as it specifically relates to COVID-19 and the CARES Act. Yeah, it's it's a great question, and it's one that we are asking ourselves every day because it seems to be a very organic situation and ever evolving. Uh, initially, uh, we had the initially when the pandemic started, we we definitely gathered the team and we started thinking about the establishment of a COVID task force, and the idea being that we we do recall some issues that impacted uh, the U.S. economy and, and various companies, Katrina and the like, over the last decade. And we recall coming out of that, there was definitely an aggressive spin by sellers to try to maximize the benefit provided during the pandemic. And I, and I realize um, I'm, I'm speaking quite callously. I don't mean the benefit in the sense of everyone acknowledges there was tragic loss both then and now. However, in terms of financial performance, there were potential benefits to be gained by identification of adjustments, whether they were valid or, or less valid. And so we we get we circled the wagons and we tried to identify those areas where we thought sellers might try to position the company in the most positive light. And we tried to sort of collectively come to a conclusion as to how we were going to treat those. And, and maybe most importantly, what standard of of proof or support we were going to require in order to corroborate some of these adjustments that are identified. And, and we, we did have good collaboration. We worked that through a, a large part of the organization at Hulahan Loki, and I think we've come to a sort of fact-based approach that has, has uh, the ability to stand a lot of scrutiny from, from other parties, whether Hulahan Loki is working on the buy side or the sell side. Um, so, so that's one way we did we we sort of prepared for the uh, the COVID and the impact of of it. And I think the second thing was just trying to, as we've alluded to, we've all alluded to several times on this this discussion, is is how could we effectively get a transaction done remotely? And and I'm perhaps more old school in my approach, and and I'm one who believes or did believe that you, the only way you could get it done was being face to face and and reading not only the the efficiency of being able to reach into the top drawer to pull out a schedule that you needed, but you could also read the nonverbal cues, et cetera. And, and I must admit that I, I still think that's very valuable, but I underestimated the ability of our teams and, and the industry to conclude work or complete diligence via a, a, a video call um, and or, or several video calls rather and, and chats. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with the work that our team's been able to accomplish in that regard. And, and I've, I feel like we've been able to do it without sacrificing any efficiency. And we've been able to do it with the benefit of our teams being able to spend more time at home or in, in the case of the most immediate 
impact not expose themselves to any potential uh, ramifications of the pandemic. Maybe I can add on to that just a bit. I think the first point on the COVID task force that, that we put together here at Hulahan, I think that's very important. And another point to add on to that is it just didn't stop there. It, it continues to evolve with reg- regular meetings and continuous updates with the group on what they are seeing in, in the current deals that they are working on. And, and I think that also goes beyond just internally at Hulahan. And it's pretty important now it may probably even more important than ever is for the all the respective diligence parties to align and communicate with each other whether that be um at the insurance or at it or hr and, and because these issues are, are definitely overlapping diligence streams and and so what we found is particularly helpful is a a more cohesive approach to diligence and and to make sure all parties are communicating the issues that they find and, and how they overlap uh, I, I think that's something definitely the impact in the current environment. Um, and I think the last thing is just like, it's just kind of continuously to adopt. I think Sean mentioned earlier uh, how the process has kind of evolved since late spring. I think when you first saw that at, at the beginning, people were concentrating on portfolio company management or on uh, 13 week cash flow management on, on making sure their companies were adequately prepared to handle whatever was approaching us. And then, I think we saw this shift uh, uh, throughout the uh, late spring and early summer to uh, then, then especially private equity sponsors, but uh, basically all companies uh, started looking toward, okay, well, we are adequately prepared and we've done some kind of risk aversion and how are we going to grow our companies uh, with the current deal flow that's out there? We saw a lot of, of sponsors turn into add-ons and, and smaller acquisitions to build their companies that way or, or focus on operational improvements and uh, and and we saw that carry forward basically to today, where you saw see now that there's a a big shift into new investments and and sell side activity is significantly ramping up, and and this will create its own uh, challenges as we continue to evolve and and just kind of looping back to that um, COVID task force. That's why we continuously meet and digest on, on what's going on in the market because uh, everything's changing day by day and, and that's going to be a hurdle in itself and, and something that we will continue to address. Thank you both. And Sean, I was glad to hear that you guys are able to conduct just as thorough of a diligence via video chat. As long as people figure out how to turn that mute button on and off, I guess there's um, only so much you can do via video chat. But I'm in any event, for, from a from a reps and warranty standpoint, one of the biggest challenges we've had is exclusions in the policy around COVID and, and the CARES Act. Um, obviously, the insured um, are are concerned that should there be a claim in the next uh, year, two years, that the insurance carrier is just going to kind of point to COVID and, and deny a claim. But more from, from a diligence standpoint, there's just been a lot of sensitivity on both sides, um, buyer and, and from the ins- uh, insurer, on, on what's considered adequate. Uh, carriers have kind of taken the position, obviously, with the exclusion that uh, COVID-19, CARES Act, or PPP loans um, are aspects of the deals that should not be covered by reps and warranties insurance. This is where, uh, to the extent that there are specific reps in the policy, policy is going to read out those those reps and consider them excluded. But on the flip side, and to your point, if buyers believe that adequate diligence has been conducted, then they're a little bit more sensitive as to why there's an exclusion if, if the diligence was conducted and this ties back into if there's tax or financial matters or customer diligence concerns, as long as the the diligence is conducted, the insurer should get comfortable. 
and and in this in this regard, buyers are providing much more information they can ahead of time, whether it's scope of diligence, what what the company or what the target's going to do with PPP loan money if applicable. And this also ties back to earlier in the conversation, but this is an area where uh, buyers are getting ahead with with insurance markets as in terms of, hey, this is this is a concern we're having. The company has a PPP loan money, it's it's cut workforce and and the like, and Carriers are going to kind of give their questions ahead of time and be like, if you can answer these questions, we should get comfortable with the associated risk. Yeah, and that's a, and that's a good point, too. And, and one I would add, and I'm not a, uh, I, I think we can all appreciate, I, I, I'm not in our IT department, but it is worth, uh, it is worth mentioning, um, you know, we're, we're also seeing that same scrutiny on the underwriting side um, as respects network security um, and data and data privacy, again, in relation to, uh, to COVID. Uh, more people are working from home. So to the extent that there is going to be a rep surrounding, uh, there have not been, uh, there has not been any data breaches or there have not been any network uh, network breaches. Insurance carriers wanna know that what, what diligence is the buyer conducting to, as respects network security and, and, and rightfully, uh, rightfully so. Just another, uh, another, uh, another tidbit worth, uh, worth mentioning. Yeah, I, I think we can all appreciate that that COVID has has put heightened focus on on certain risk areas. Obviously, from uh, financial and accounting diligence, that's that's financial performance. But then there's areas that that cross many streams of of looking at contracts, and and there's been several key changes in contracts that companies have with customers or vendors or or whoever that might be. And then obviously with employment, there's there's so many changes there with uh, different furloughs and, and the PPP loans and, and how do we handle that with transactions. I, I think we'll see, we're seeing all of these different focus areas evolve and, and I, I think that um, goes back to the point where uh, for, from a reps and warranty perspective, I think we just need to continue to uh, have open communication streams. And I think you highlight a point of getting questions out early and uh, that's very helpful for all parties involved, uh, involved in the process of, of knowing what you guys are looking for and making sure we're addressing those risks as well. And, and I think then we'll have more successful processes as a result. I think that's a great segue for maybe, maybe you guys can t talk to us about what the general approach is you all are seeing regarding blanket or specific exclusions for RWI in regard to COVID. Yeah, specifically related to uh, COVID-19 or CARES Act, um, the reps and warranties market has now had the better part of a year, which is weird to say. Um, and I always forget what month it is, just this year has been a big blur. But um, with, with the exclusion, uh, late February, early March, um, markets had come out with a very broad exclusion. I was quote unquote, any losses related to COVID-19. And in the following weeks and months, uh, everyone had their shot of kind of modifying that language and, and adding qualifiers. And, and now markets have their, their hands around it. And it's four or five lines long, includes qualifiers, as I mentioned, and also usually applies to specific reps in the purchase agreement, just given the, the nature of the operations or the, the deal specifics. And this evolution in the language is in large part due to diligence, which I know we've been talking about. Um, as discussed, markets have 10 to 15 questions they ask. And if a buyer is able to show that sufficient diligence was conducted, then the carrier is more willing to narrow the exclusion and in some instances remove it altogether. Uh, recently, I've seen brief summaries or memos in data rooms where there is a four to five page summary on diligence efforts that, that the, as either the buyer or the seller has conducted. Recently, as of late August, early September, um, there's just some type of deals where markets aren't coming in with an exclusion at all. 
And these are somewhat limited to, at least in my experiences, online tech platforms, um, more or less competitors to Zoom in some comparison, where they've largely been unaffected by what's going on in the market and have actually, their, their sales have increased um, tenfold. In addition to the, the COVID-19 portion of the exclusion evolving, exclusion has also evolved to include PPP loan or CARES Act matters. Uh, some, markets, some markets are willing to remove it, but this would only apply to certain areas such as the initial application for that loan or eligibility for it. So there's at least one market out there that has a list of 10 to 15 questions, and they're going to ask whether the PPP loan submission materials were accurate, whether proper analysis was conducted when determining the amount of PPP loan money requested, as well as the economic conditions of the company prior to the pandemic. Um, they're also going to want to know how the company has fared since receiving those funds and what those funds are being used for. Um, and then I would, I'd be remiss to not mention, but there are a few or a handful of markets, I want to say two or three, that are actually offering uh, insurance policies for this PPP loan uh, repayment. And it's meant to cover a few things, which include loan eligibility, certification, forgiveness, and repayment. And this kind of gives reps and warranties insurance markets a bit of a leg to stand on, that there's a separate policy out there, uh, so they don't need to rely on reps and warranties insurance to cover that. And from a business standpoint, most buyers are simply just not taking on the risk of PPP loan money. Um, I, have a, I have a recent public to private deal where the buyer is requiring the company to either pay it back or take out a separate insurance policy on, on the loan proceeds. I think you hit the nail on the head that, that we are seeing more markets uh, open to specifically underwriting to uh, a COVID-related a COVID ex exclusion. And, you know, the role of the broker in that, uh, in that instance, or at least a decent broker, will be to uh, have that uh, push to have that exclusion removed altogether or narrowing it or tapering it as, as best we can so as not to limit, uh, so as not to limit coverage on behalf of our clients. To Sumit's point earlier, I think earlier in the year, uh, and certainly five months ago at, uh, at this time, markets were very much taking a, a hard stance and drawing their line in the, in the sand with respect to the, that exclusion. And I think as, as time goes on, we're, we're seeing a little bit, um, we're seeing a little bit uh, of, a, of a softer, a softer stance. Um, and again, a, a more, a more favorable position on that, on that exclusion, which again is obviously a, uh, obviously a, a value add um, to our, uh, to our end users. I, I think we're pretty close to, the end of what we wanted to uh, to talk about today, uh, and we otherwise really appreciate you guys uh, jumping off the, on, on the on the phone this morning. Uh, certainly, after that uh, after that Dallas Cowboys win, uh, calling in from uh, from Dallas. Thank you. Uh, from my perspective, I think that was very insightful, and uh, I I thoroughly enjoyed the Cowboys win as as well. Even though that I I'm in Chicago now, <laughs> I I will I'll never leave the Cowboys behind uh, here. That was a eventful game, but. Uh, thanks a lot uh, for the time here, and uh, I hope this was a helpful conversation, and hopefully the listeners will, will find that some of the topics covered are helpful as well, and um, appreciate the, inviting us on the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate the time as well. Hope everyone has a, a great day and a good week. Thank you for listening, and for more information, go to www.alliance.com.